Sometimes we have to ask the big, scary questions that we know have big, scary answers. Why is Jesus called the Word? Why is he called the truth? How do these two relate? How does John present them as themes in his gospel account? And most importantly, why does the guy singing Breakfast at Tiffany's sound like he's on talk radio in 1946? Good morning, Los Angeles. It's another beautiful morning here in paradise, a nice balmy 78 degrees. It's a good time to be alive, isn't it, Joe? I couldn't agree more, Al. Tell you what, after this morning's broadcast, what do you say you and I go out to a nice breakfast, perhaps at Tiffany's Diner? What was that? Oh, Joe, you heard me. I said, what about breakfast at Tiffany's? You know, I think I remember that joint. And as I recall, I think we both kind of liked it. I suppose I can go for a good plate of eggs right now. You know what? Last time, I think that's the one thing we got. In any case, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Redeeming the Time radio broadcast live from Los Angeles. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Redeeming the Time podcast. I have to say, that was fun. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about something that's really, really a big, big deal. Well, less of a big deal and more of a really big topic to deal with. Today, we're going to talk about the word, John 1, 1, and most of John chapter 1. Why in the world does John call Jesus the Word? It's such a perplexing question. It took me a while to kind of go through and try and figure it out. And I've come up with a really complicated but a really concrete way that I can help describe to you what the Word is. I'm going to do it in kind of a counterintuitive way. You'd think if I'm going to talk about language that I'm going to start talking about humanities and the arts and explain to you what the Word is. I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it with math. Now, maybe math isn't your forte, but that's all right. What we're going to do is super concrete. So because this is a podcast and not a video series, I can't show you what I'm going to be doing. So instead, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk you through what you're going to be doing. We're going to be dealing with some concrete stuff here. So all you need, you can you can follow along in your head if you feel confident in that. If you're driving, don't do what I'm about to tell you to do. But if you feel like you want to experience this concrete way of talking about John chapter 1, then I recommend you uh, pause the podcast in just a minute and gather yourself some materials. You want a pen and or pencil and or sharpie or, you know, something along those lines. A writing implement. You want a piece of paper. A whiteboard will do. You're better off with a piece of paper, though. And you want a cube-like object, such as a Rubik's Cube or a small box, like if you purchased a watch or something lately that's come in a small box. Uh, that would be ideal, too, as long as it's cube-like or somewhat rectangular. 
That's all you need. Those are all the materials that you need to perform this little exercise that I'm about to do with you. So, pause in just a second and go get the stuff right now. Now the real question is, why would I pause and let there be silence if you're just going to pause the podcast anyways? And the answer to that question is, I don't care. Alright, so here's your first instruction. Get seated down with your pen and paper, and here's what you're going to do. Draw a straight line. Very perplexing. If you need me to slow down, just I'm sure you can find a way to slow down the podcast. Draw a straight line. I recommend making it about four inches long on a standard piece of paper. Just a straight line. Alright, so what did we just do? We have a one-dimensional object. We can measure it in one perspective. Only length. It doesn't have any height, it doesn't have any depth, and you could measure the width of your pen, or we could measure uh, how much it pops off the paper, but... Really, the only feasible measurement is how long you just made it, which I recommended eyeball it about four inches. That is a one-dimensional object, also known as a line. Alright, things are about to get way more complicated. Now, draw a square. You can do that separate, or you can do that using the line that you have. Um, either is fine. I also recommend making the square about four inches on all four of its sides. So I assume you all know what a square is. Let's think about the square. Notice how we have two dimensions or measurements on this, uh, on this drawing. We have height and length now. We can measure how far it went in one line, but we also rotated a different line up 90 degrees perpendicular to our original line. We now have two dimensions. Our area of space that we could have is infinite in two directions, our x-axis and our y-axis. And on that, we plotted a square. Why did we plot a square? I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Now, we're going to add a third dimension. And to do that, to have a whole new dimension, you have to be able to fit in a new 90 degree angle that you haven't already used yet, which right now is out depth. Take your box or your cube or whatever, just set it right on the square that you just drew on that piece of paper. What do we have now? You can pick it up again. We now have a three-dimensional object in our three-dimensional universe. In our universe, you can fit three 90-degree angles perpendicular to each other. You cannot fit a fourth. It just doesn't work. You can only have three axes that are 90 degrees uh, away from each other. And that's our third dimension. So we can have a cube. Now, let's think about our cube for a minute. You probably never thought this hard about a cube, but notice some stuff about it. One, it has six faces. That's the flat square sides. Made out of 12 edges where two of those sides meet and eight corners where three sides meet, all of which, those are all perpendicular angles, even the ones that are the corners with three sides, all right? These are the things that make it a cube. But here's where things get really fun. Could we go in reverse? Could we take our cube and put it into a two-dimensional area? The answer is we're going to try. All right, so here's your instructions. This is the most complicated instruction I'm going to give you now. If you know how to draw a cube, just do that now. If you don't, 
I'm going to explain it to you through this podcast. Draw a square. You could even use the square that you already drew. All right, then you want to draw another congruent square. That's a math term. It means the same, the exact same square. But you want to align it up so that it's rotated the same way, but you want to move it maybe an inch to the right and another inch up, diagonally away from the square that you already made, overlapping with it, but slightly askew. Now we have two squares that are, for the most part, lining up on each other. Now, draw a line from each corner to its matching corner on the new square. So the bottom left corner goes to the bottom left corner of the new square. Top left corner goes to the top left, so on, so on. Now we have the illusion of a cube drawn on our paper, yes? But is it a cube? Well, let's figure this out. If we break down this thing that we just drew, we have seven panels, not six faces. For instance, another way you could have drawn this cube would have been to make seven different shapes and then push them all together in a certain way. So we have seven panels instead of the six faces that we should have. We have a few perpendicular angles, like on the squares, but we have some angles that aren't perpendicular at all, like the angle of the line moving from the bottom left corner to the bottom left corner of the other square. That's not a perpendicular angle, that's like somewhere in between. So we don't really have a cube, do we? But it certainly looks like a cube on a piece of paper. In fact, We could still do measurements and calculations using our cube drawing as a reference. It gives us kind of an understanding of a three-dimensional object, but on a two-dimensional plane. It gives an idea of three dimensions to a two-dimensional world. Imagine that you were like Spongebob or some cartoon character. You don't understand the three-dimensional world, but you can kind of see an example of a three-dimensional object on your two-dimensional plane. We don't have a cube on a piece of paper. We have an expression of a cube on a piece of paper. And there's our key word for today's episode. We have an expression of a cube. Alright, so when we talk about the word, we're talking mainly about John chapter 1. See, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. There's one basic thing that we can draw from this passage, and that's that it's referencing creation. It's referencing Genesis 1. And why shouldn't it? Genesis chapter 1 is the most intimate passage talking about God's reality, God's existence. We don't have any sort of literature in the Bible that's as clear about the plane, uh, not the plane, the uh, the well, dimension that God exists in. Aside from Genesis chapter 1, we get the picture of uh, the Spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters and speaking things into existence. And John 1 isn't providing anything new, just a new perspective. 
See, we already have the idea of the voice of God that creates, and God spoke the world into being. That's common understanding. And John chapter 1 calls Jesus the Word. We know this Word is the, the guy the story focuses on later on. That's Jesus. Jesus is the Word who was with God, distinct from God, but also was God. And it's just another way of looking at the creation story that we already have from Genesis 1. So at its most basic level, John 1.1 is just a statement of Jesus' divinity, but that calls back to Genesis chapter 1. However, it goes deeper than that, as with everything else in John, of course. See, the word is God, but it's also distinct from God. That's a really weird statement. But it's consistent with the way that Jesus talks about himself, okay? Remember our key word here, expression. Jesus is the word, the expression of God. God is on a higher reality that is beyond human imagination. But we have an expression. We've taken our Jesus cube and brought him down to our level. Not that Jesus is dumbed down, but he's at least simplified so we can understand him. It's as close as you can get on our human reality what God is. And Jesus isn't the only expression of God that we see. We have other expressions of God. We have three in total, actually, and a few sub-expressions of God. Those are uh, bigger theological concepts like wisdom personified, which maybe is Jesus. That's a whole nother conversation. But there's three. There's the Trinity. There's the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Those are each part of one God. How are three parts to one God? Well, because in their real reality, they are one. Just like the cube that you hold is one item. But in our reality, in order to understand it, we have to Maybe take our cube and formulate it out of seven different shapes? Oh, yeah. See, so we take that one reality and it's in three pieces. That's the Trinity. And Jesus is an expression of that one God. The expression that's called the Word. The Word is God, but is distinct from God. Because in God's reality, they're one. But in our reality, we have multiple expressions. Which means that we can have this weird thing where God the Son can communicate with God the Father. How do we have interactions between two different expressions? Well, we just, we do. Because in our reality, they have to be broken up. Or at least God does it himself so that we can understand different aspects, different expressions. You realize how deep and how, like, huge this is? It would be, like, really easy to commit heresy, like, anywhere right here. So I'm trying really hard not to. But this is consistent. This isn't anything that's new. The word being an expression of God is totally consistent with the way that Jesus talks about himself in the book of John. So let's take a look. This is all going to be familiar passages. So listen to John chapter 3, 11 through 13. Check this out. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. Why is Jesus here? 
to reveal things about this new reality, this heaven, and about God. That's why Jesus is here. He tells this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. No one has ascended to heaven but he who has come down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man. Next, take a look at John chapter 8. So we're going to start in verse 13. I'm just going to read this big block of text. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Again, Jesus is talking about how he's an expression of the father. He's one with the father, and he's the way that humanity can interact with the Father, the understanding of the Father, comes through Jesus Christ. Remember his other statement? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I would argue that that applies to understanding as well, and that's consistent in the book of John. There's only one way to even understand the Father, and that's by the expression of the Father. So is Jesus distinct, or is he an expression of one unified God? One unified God that he's an expression of. He is divine, talking about the divine. Again, this is huge, and it would be really hard to commit heresy, and I'm trying really hard not to. But take a look for yourself. This is very consistent in the way that Jesus talks about himself and the way that John talks about Jesus. One more example. We're going to do John chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 44. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. This kind of stuff is why people claimed that Jesus was a prophet. He's a messenger. He's bringing about this new order. And this isn't the only thing that Jesus is, of course. There's so much more to the character of Jesus. But this is a big part of it, is that he's an expression of what about God? He's an expression of God's grace, his saving power, his love. He's an expression of a God that we couldn't fully understand, but we can at least begin to understand Jesus. He has come delivering the message of God, making known the mysteries of God. 
and it's all unified. It's all consistent with the Old Testament, what was already spoken, and everything that was spoken after it. It is consistent. This is what it means when we talk about Jesus being the Word. He's an expression of God, and he came to make things about God known so that we could go and know God further. We're going to take a look at another passage spontaneously. This should have been in my notes. Why wasn't it in my notes? All right, so I'm running on the fly here because I don't have my notes, but I just realized this connects to something else too. What is the ultimate goal that Jesus had in coming to earth? There's a passage that makes that painfully clear and obvious, and I'm going to read it now. All right, so this passage is Jesus praying for anyone who ever believes in him, which is you. So it's pretty important that you know this passage, but it's really difficult read. This is like just a lot of pronouns, and it's not consistent in the way we casually use English. So I'm going to try to read it slowly, but listen to what Jesus prays in John 17, 20 through 26. I do not pray for these, the disciples, alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their, the disciples' word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known me, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared them to your name, and will declare it, that the love which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. All right, that is a really long, really rich passage, but what is it saying? This is all about togetherness and knowing God and knowing Jesus and knowing the love of the one true God in one. How many times does it even say? I'm not even going to stop and count. It says oneness a lot in this one passage. In fact, I have it written down to maybe do a full episode on oneness because this is the culmination of a huge pattern in John, by the way. What is the ultimate goal? Jesus has come to make God known. The idea is that we know him as well as we can here on earth and ultimately have a hope to know him eternally and infinitely. That's awesome. And that's what Jesus came to do. And so that's why there's this metaphor for the word, for the expression of God to us two-dimensional people. Well, three-dimensional people from the fourth dimension. I don't know. You get the idea.
So the question here is, what does this mean? What does this change? Does this like totally revolutionize the way we think about Jesus and the Bible and John? And it means nothing. Okay, this is this is how it it, it goes. It literally changes one thing, which is nothing, but also is a thing. It changes like half of a thing. It changes the way we think about and talk about Jesus. It doesn't change how we interpret his teachings. It doesn't change how we behave. It just gives us a richer understanding, kind of a unifying metaphor of who he is so that we can communicate about him better and just straight up understand him better. Like, the Trinity is a huge, 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 huge concept that people really struggle to wrap their heads around, me included. How do we understand the Godhead, which is of a universe that is beyond our understanding? Well, you don't, but we try. And that's where this whole expression idea comes about. This changes the way we talk and think about Jesus and God and the Godhead. That's all. No revolutions, just a really, really deep, really, really rich 2,000-year-old way to talk about the character of Jesus. It also talks about the brilliance of John chapter 1. So, the Gospels are what we call Gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic accounts, and I do not recall for the life of me what synoptic means, but here's the understanding. They all have really similar material. Have you noticed that all three of them tell a lot of the stories uh, either in two or three uh, times, depending on which gospel you read? And they all kind of have different themes, but for the most part, they're chronological stories about what Jesus taught and what he did, and they're pretty much just by the book. So that's what I would call, in, in just modern day, this is not like theological uh, terminology, but just in casual terminology, this is what I would call an account. Like, I think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, of an account in the way that I think of money and accounts. You know, that reading a ledger and pages and pages of numbers and boxes and spreadsheets. And that that's kind of what I think about when I think about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are accounts in the way that they present the factual information. That That's a good thing, but they're not necessarily a thrilling read. They're, they're deep, they have a lot in them, there's a lot to learn from them, but their structure is very much, here's what he did, here's what he said, here's how it went down, and not a whole lot beyond that. John's gospel is an account in the way that it's true, and so we often call it an account, but it's harmful to think about John as strictly a report of what happened. There's question as to whether John is even chronological. I'm not convinced that it is chronological. I think it might break chronology. But why? Why would John, why would that even come up? Why would John break the chronology, the timeline of Jesus' life? Well, that's because John is not just a straight number-for-number spreadsheet account of what Jesus did. John is a structured narrative. It's very rich. It's a different style of writing from the other uh, the other Gospels. It tells a story that wrestles with certain questions and has themes, and that's not to say the others don't, but the way John does it is so incredible. I mean, think about, like, Matthew's introduction has just a lot of names and background information. It's like reading a Wikipedia page. But John's Gospel doesn't open up with uh, genealogy. It opens up with the Word, and this whole incredible abstract, it's 18 verses, I think, of just 
incredible introduction that sets the themes and the questions that we're going to wrestle with throughout the entire book. That's what John is. And this is part of it. This is John's metaphor for explaining who God is, is the word. And it's a theme that we see throughout the rest of the book. So when we think about John, like it's just an account of what happened, and we're supposed to look at individual teachings, individual sayings, individual miracles, that's not how it is. John has been very carefully structured as a plot, and that's why it works as a movie. When I was prepping to do this entire series, I watched, I spontaneously decided that I wanted to do some teachings out of John, and... I needed to understand the design patterns. I could tell there was a lot going on in in the idea of uh, themes and patterns, but it was really hard for me to tune in on all of them. So I just had this idea, and I looked up on uh, online to see if there's like a John movie, and I found the perfect one. I'll make sure I link it in the description of this podcast for those of you who can read the description. If you're on like uh, Apple Podcasts, you should be able to see it. Google Play, I don't think, has it. Uh, but in the description, you'll be able to get to this link. And that movie was incredible. And the script was literally just the Gospel of John. Nothing was added, nothing was taken out, sort of. There were a few, um, it's based on a translation which doesn't include certain uh, phrases included in certain manuscripts. But for the most part, it was just John's Gospel. And the only interpretation had to be in the way that people delivered lines in certain contexts and where things happened. But it absolutely nailed it. How, how do you nail something without changing it from its, you know, 2,000-year-old structure? It just works. John's narrative is such an incredible story, and the way that it deals with its themes means that there's more to reading John than to just looking at individual passages and verses and taking them all at face value. There's a deeper structural theme here, just like any good narrative. I absolutely adore The Dark Knight. I think it is one of the greatest movies of all time. Definitely the greatest comic book movie of all time. I mean, people are all about the Avengers, but dang, Dark Knight has incredible themes in it. That's what really holds it all together. It's not the Batman stuff and the action. It's the way it deals with its themes. Any good literature has themes, and John has themes, and this is one of them, all in answering the one most critical thematic question, which is, who is this guy? So, in other words, there's really nothing inherently new about understanding what the word is, what I'm trying to present here. Nothing about this is new. It's all very old and very familiar, and it's very consistent in the way that Jesus talks about himself. It's just a new understanding. All that this changes is it gives us a better way to think and talk about who he is to each other. So, in other words, Jesus has always been and always will be the one thing we've got. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Redeeming the Time Radio, and we'll see you in the next broadcast. just in on Redeeming the Time News. Jesus Christ has been summoned to the court following an identity crisis outlined by the masses. Authorities are calling into question Jesus' birth certificate, which claims that his father is Yahweh himself. 
The following court proceedings will attempt to figure out exactly who Jesus really is and whether his birth certificate can be trusted. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more information as soon as we have it here at Redeeming the Time News Radio, where we're always in pursuit of the truth. <laughs>